0: years ago he got a book to hold my private thoughts.
1: but this week we're not going to talk about it because it doesn't fucking matter it sure fucking doesn't hi mike hey cam what's up <laughs> is that a difficult um, question to
0: answer or? yeah yeah um let's just begin because uh i got some shit to say um this is not going to be a regular episode the world is on fire for really good reason, and we want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, so we decided to not release an episode last week for a couple of reasons, uh, mostly to make sure the airways were cleared, and we left as much room as possible for Black activists to lead the way in this movement, um, and also to you know take some time and make sure we were listening hard enough and as educated as possible before we spoke. So now we want to reflect on what we've learned and the ways we can use our white privilege to be a force of change in this movement.
0: Yes, I would like to say that I I am very much appreciating the grace that is being given by a lot of black activists to show up imperfectly rather than not show up at all because I am going to be imperfect in this and I'm going to continue to try to do better and better and better every time.
1: Agreed. It's really easy to just feel paralyzed by the fear of saying the wrong thing, but it's just, we don't have time for that. Inaction is not an option, so we just need to do the very best we can and listen and be willing to correct ourselves.
0: We don't get to be perfect in this it is going to be ugly it is going to be uncomfortable and all we can do is continue to learn and right our wrongs and admit when we do things wrong or imperfectly or without the necessary grace
1: i don't have the necessary grace for most things so why should this be any different <laughs> so this is obviously not the first time protests have erupted after a black person was murdered by a policeman um but i'm apprehensively hopeful that something is different this time
0: it feels like we are at the on the precipice of something Great as far as a movement is concerned in this country, a, a, a long overdue movement, a 400-year past-due movement um, towards ending racial inequality and injustice. Which um, is really tough when it's literally the building blocks of our country. Yeah, we, like most white people in this country, received a very incomplete education when it comes to um, the how, this, how the system actually works in our favor and how it works um, against people of color. Uh, I want to say that I am fucking embarrassed um, about my lack of knowledge, about my lack of commitment to knowledge uh, in the past, and also my complicity. Pardon the interruption, guys. Mike here to grab the opportunity to make fun of
1: Cam's grammar for once. I don't know if he meant complicity or complacency, but either way it works. Listener's choice. Back to Cam. I have... Oop, just kidding. Still Mike. Cam heard that and texted me to say, I meant complicity, you asshat. So that's all clear now. Back to Cam for real this time.
0: I have been an armchair activist at best. I have made donations when things have been on my radar, and then gone back to thinking about me. And this is a movement that requires constant attention and constant action. And uh, I am committing to to do better um, and to to educate myself about that.
1: I'm 100% complicit as well, and it's not just the fact that we're armchair activists. You know, every part of my life is built up from a system designed against black people and against black lives and it is important that beyond just our donations and our actions we recognize that any every white person in this country benefits every second of every day from our racist system and until so we have a, a, a long hard look at that, nothing is going to change
0: I think first of all that for us and for many listeners of this podcast it is easy, it is the easy thing to do To say, I am a gay person and we have been oppressed and that is my focus 100% of the time. Or, I am a woman and uh, I have been oppressed and held down and that is my focus. Think about gay people of color and women of color. They don't have the luxury to have one oppressor. They have... Th- these things compound uh, upon themselves it makes life exponentially harder for these people to 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 be a, a person of color and i have so many times just ignored that it is it is so easy just to think the plight of the gay man is enough for me that's enough of a burden that checks my box of minority and that is my burden to bear and everyone else has their own crosses to bear that is that's that's not okay no it's not and for a lot of reasons
1: like you said, blackness intersects every other oppressed group, and black oppression is woven into our institutions in a way that being gay is not. Also, the only reason we have the rights we do as white gays is because of a movement started and, and largely fought for by black and brown queer people. Yeah.
0: Also, I can hide being gay. 100% of the time. I can butch it up. I do. When I drive through the South, yeah. I lower my voice, and I don't wear my gayest shit, and I just pass.
1: And obviously, I, I can't always hide being gay, and I don't want to, but the point is, Because I'm white, I have the privilege of letting my gayness be ignored, whether I'm applying for housing or interviewing for a job or or looking for medical attention. My white privilege always outranks.
0: I have been trying to consciously examine racism in my own life and my upbringing. I went to a school with 2000 kids and probably less than 20 black students in my class. Um, I, I grew up in the Midwest, but a family that was largely from the South, and there were racist incidents in my upbringing that I have never spent a ton of time unpacking. One of my best friends growing up was black and I just decided that was enough a long time ago <laughs> that that was enough to make me not racist. Um and I I was I was telling Mike before we started recording um I can't get this one time out of my head. It's a a, a story that my mom used to tell at fucking parties. That we were driving through downtown Indianapolis one time. It was not our community. We lived out in the suburbs with all the other white people. And this was probably late 90s. And there was a black guy walking down the street. And his pants were sagging down. And you could see his boxers. And my mom just hated that so much. She rolled down my window, leaned across me, and screamed at that guy to pull up his pants. My mother, who would swear up and down, there's not a racist bone in her body. That, to her was so inappropriate because she didn't understand it. She didn't like it. She thought it was something she didn't like to see. And so she, as a white woman, felt okay screaming at a perfect stranger about how he was choosing to wear his clothes because she didn't get it. And that is so racist. And she would joke about that for years to come. That's not very different from what that fucking fucking Amy Cooper did to Christian Cooper. No relation. Yeah. You
1: know, just a, a white woman trying to assert that she's superior to a black man in a public space. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this was perfectly acceptable behavior for someone in my house to scream at a stranger and say act more white because it makes me uncomfortable when you do things that uh, that seem too black to me
1: of course white people love to tell black people how to behave and of course like they can never win we tell them to be blacker when it when it's when it suits whatever entertainment we're consuming but then whiter when it makes us more comfortable
0: it sounds like um, all those white people that were quote-unquote fans of beyonce until lemonade came out and then people love to say oh now she's black all of a sudden i can't tell you the number of people i heard say like "Uh, i don't know it seems like she's really just pandering because it's popular to be black right now
1: there was a snl sketch on that remember that one for white people it was just another great week they never saw it coming they had no warning then it
0: happened. Beyonce released a new music video oh, that
1: embraces her black heritage. Beyonce video is unapologetically black. Tribute to the Black Lives Matter movement. blackness black black. like never before. Honey, get in black here! What is it? What's wrong with Out of nowhere. I think Beyonce is black.
0: Beyonce was not allowed to be black until she was Beyonce. She was not allowed—we would never have allowed her as white people and white people consuming things. We would never have found that— level of art expressing the black experience to be palatable on a scale until we all grew to love Beyonce. And then she was allowed to make the art that mattered to her. Another example of more recent history of me just shrugging my shoulders and say, you don't get it, mom, and not having a hard conversation was a few years ago, Peter and I were lucky enough to go to the Grammys. And it was the year that Kendrick Lamar's album to pimp a butterfly came out. And he had this huge, I don't know if you remember it, but it was this massive performance with all these pyrotechnics. And it was really moving it was like incredible to see
1: is bigger than me. Excuse
0: my there's very clear commentary about his experience as a black man and it was very powerful to see and my mom knew we were at the grammys and she texted me in that moment and said i had to turn that off i don't know what's wrong with that guy but he has some anger to work through I'm like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that guy. He's making art based on his experience. It's just, it was, and I just was like, oh, never, never going to get through to her. That would, would have been an opportunity to talk to my mom about her racist perception of black art, but we didn't have that conversation then.
1: There's never a good time. It's never convenient. It's always going to be a hard conversation, and. We are all, I mean, I am guilty and you are guilty and uh, probably a lot of our white listeners are guilty of skipping these conversations because we don't feel like it. Just the other day, I was on the phone with someone and I brought it up and just like, ah, I'm exhausted. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like, I, we don't, we don't get that option. Like, mm. There's never going to be a time when it's like fun and easy to chat about systemic racism and, and black people in our country getting regularly murdered. If we don't choose to make the time, then we have decided that black lives, in fact, do not matter.
0: Think about the privilege associated with the statement, I am exhausted by a week of tough conversations and protests, when this is daily life for every person of color for their entire life in this country. must be fucking exhausting. It must be fucking exhausting to think, where can I go in my community? Where can I show my face and be the least threatened? Or, as a parent, where can my child go? How do I prepare my child for this for this experience in this country where they are going to walk on eggshells in order to not be the victim of a violent crime or they're not. And they're hugely at risk of ending up in a morgue.
1: There's been a bunch of stuff on social media going around about parents having those conversations with their black kids. Um, Uh One of the most impactful moments of one of those uh, videos to me was a guy who said that his mom told him the rules growing up of how to behave in public. You don't get to do, you don't get to just like follow the same footsteps as your white friends. Like if you go into a convenience store, you must buy something and you must get a receipt. Even if it is for a pack of gum, you can't walk out of a convenience store like you're, Like your white friends without having purchased something. Otherwise, it will be assumed that you've stolen something. The cops will be called, and you'll be lucky if you just arrested. Jesus.
0: That is so bleak.
1: Every now and then, if I walk into a store, like a grocery store, especially where you have to exit through the cash registers, if I don't buy something, I'm like, does it look sketchy that I came in, looked around, they didn't have it, and I left? Eh, no, it's fine. And I walk out, and I've never had a problem. Imagine walking into a grocery store as a black person, not finding what you need and leaving. Uh Uh-huh. There is no way you're going to get to the cash register without someone stopping you.
0: Nope. I think it's also worth noting, like, just the, the base definition of racism that we learn growing up as white kids is overt racism. We are all racist in ways that we don't realize or that we're just now starting to realize we've
1: chosen to ignore
0: Yeah, or we've chosen to ignore. I don't want to discount the white people that have been doing the work for a long time because there are some of them out there, but the vast majority of us are just starting work in in a big way and realizing that overt racism using the N word, using violence towards people of color that is base level out loud racism that has been socially unacceptable in most communities for a long time. However, the quiet kind, the most insidious kind, this inert racism that lays right below the surface, these are the systemic problems that we're talking about. These are the subconscious biases that are ruling our lives and our interactions with people of color every day. For example, when we, before we started recording,
1: you were telling me the story about uh, your mom screaming at the black man to pull up his pants, um, and you said that you had the impression that he was a tough guy. What in our upbringing gave us the impression that that black man was a tough guy? what was he doing that made us feel like he was tough?
0: Yes. This was a man walking down a street in broad daylight, minding his own goddamn business. And me, I, I had already at that point, I was what, like eight, nine, 10 years old. I already at that point had an impression that that guy was probably dangerous in some way to me. My reaction to my mom rolling down my window, screaming out the passenger side window at this guy to pull up his pants was not, mom, that's racist. How dare you? My reaction was, mom, you're putting me at risk because that guy's probably a dangerous man and I'm in front of, I'm between you and him. And that was because he was black and he was sagging his pants, she wasn't the only racist person in that car. But I, like, I, I was outraged by her behavior, not because it was it was a racist thing to say. I was outraged by her behavior because I felt like it put me at risk from this stranger. Yeah,
1: the white presumption that black people are dangerous is very deeply baked into America. It's really clearly explained in both Thirteenth, uh, which is on Netflix from 2016 by Ava DuVernay, which is about the prison industrial complex and its, um, its roots in slavery. And also 1619, which is the New York times. I listened to the podcast, but there's also a uh, written work on it as well. well. I think the New York times magazine has a, a piece. I'm not sure. I heard the podcast. Um, and that's by uh, Nicole Hannah Jones. And in both of them, uh, they mention the birth of a nation which is obviously the film. Not
0: obviously. It wasn't obvious to me. It was something that, that I did not know existed, or if I ever learned about it, it didn't stick.
1: You're right. I don't know why I said obviously, because obviously I didn't know this stuff until I <laughs> consumed this material. So The Birth of a Nation was a basically a film to scare white folks on black people. It was a, a man in blackface was depicted as a disgusting monster who's out to rape and kill white women. And um, that image stuck. And that image has been recreated over and
0: over and over in different incarnations. Um, That was a film, by the way, that was privately screened in the White House. It was lauded as like the best (laughs) film of all time. It was a film in which a white woman killed herself in like the seminal scene because she was going to be raped by a black man. Who was,
1: which was again a white man on
0: blackface, exactly, and she she chose to end her life instead of be raped by the great black devil, which was being depicted, and this was the epitome of cinematic culture in what, like the 30s,
1: Uh, even earlier. It was 1915, and it was. Responsible for inspiring a new rebirth from the KKK because it it showed KKK members Klansmen as the heroic force in the film and laid the groundwork for white America disproportionately depicting black men as criminals in the media.
0: There are literally millions of examples, but there are a a few things that have really stuck with me about the the things that I've learned recently, Um, one of which you learn within – The first five minutes of pressing play on 13th, we have—the United States has 5% of the world's population, Mm -hmm. but we have 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So our country that barely scratches the surface as far as the the population numbers, we have a full quarter of the world's incarcerated people, and that has happened between the 90s and today— uh, in before George W Bush took office there were less than 500,000 people in in prisons and now we have like what is it 2.5 million people yeah well over 2 million well over 2
1: million the rise in the prison population was and is specifically targeted to keep black people a out of society and locked up, and B, as free labor, they are slave labor in prison, but because we've labeled them criminals and put them in prison, society feels just in doing so. I'm really ineloquently saying what 13th masterfully explains, so I would just in-
0: implore you to watch the film. Before we get too far away from 13th, two quick points I want to make. You talk about free labor. One image that has really stuck with me about that that, makes, that made me just stop and realize how little I know is the image of Idaho potatoes being harvested and packaged almost exclusively by prison inmates by modern day slavery. It is like a modern, it just struck me as the, as a direct, what am I trying to say? Not, not even metaphor. It's the same thing. It's modern day cotton plantations. Uh, It's these people uh, farming for free and then rich white guys making so much money off their backs and then being sold in every grocery store in America. And the other thing I wanted to say was that I mentioned George Bush earlier. He is one of many villains. It, he's not the only person that contributed to this. Specifically, starting with the Nixon administration and moving forward, like the the mass incarceration hockey sticked As soon as that motherfucker and his cabinet took office and decided that they were going to co op the civil rights movement, the the aftermath of the civil rights movement in the '60s and is directly in the '70s, start incarcerating black men as a way to specifically keep them down. The rhetoric of get tough and law and order um, was part of parcel of the backlash of the civil rights movement. Nixon administration official has admitted that the war on drugs is all about throwing black people in jail. He said, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. We're sitting here talking about all this, and all I can think is any person of color listening to this is like, Yep, that's not news. This is not for—we're not trying to educate people of color because they have dealt with this since day one, since they understood how society was stacked against them. This is education for white people, ourselves included, who have never been forced to stare this ugly shit in its face, have never been forced to educate ourselves about how this is uh, affecting other people because we are— living with the effects of our privilege with the benefits of our privilege 100 percent. and the more we
1: listen and watch and read the more clearly we understand how deep that white privilege goes and how how vast those benefits are and understanding it is the
0: first step in in using it to make change um we have kind of created a voice over the past year on this podcast of of you know lightheartedness and, and hopefulness and um you know, we are we are angry and we're gonna stay angry about this, but I would like to take a minute and just talk about a couple of things that I have that that we have seen already coming out of this this movement that are hopeful and that are that are a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um I would like to give credit to a few a few people I won't even I won't even name names because we don't need white heroes right now. But um I have a friend who um has chosen to engage both of her parents from um from rural Texas on this and her mother who voted for Trump quite proudly and loudly is all of a sudden making a change very quickly making a change. She's an educator, this woman, and she is taking time to engage black students that she has had who are willing to talk to her right now and, and help her, Um, change her perspective a little bit. She's having nightly Zoom calls with with uh, students that she's had in her classroom about their experience and how she can be better. That is
1: incredibly generous of those Black students to offer her an education.
0: Of course it is. Because as we know and we are realizing and people may be learning you know, this the hard way, it is not Black people's responsibility to educate us on how to be anti-racist. They have enough on their fucking plate. But these very generous former students who care about this educator are taking time to talk to her about how she can use her privilege for the good of of them as a, as someone in the public schools, which is fucking beautiful. And the same friend just today, I got a text from her. She had a really tough conversation with her father. He has been overtly racist in many ways over her life, which is sometimes easier to acknowledge. Yeah. It it wasn't easy for her to acknowledge for a long time because he was, it was a very, um, it's that kind of household where you don't challenge your dad, but she is, she's having those conversations. And I, I find that very hopeful. I find it very hopeful that, that young white people who come from privilege are starting to have some hard conversations across the board. And we're starting already to see some people challenge their beliefs, th- their long-held beliefs. And I I find that to be a glimmer of hope. Yeah. It's important to appreciate the moment that lift your
1: spirit, <laughs> I've been saying. To you privately, that like nothing feels funny, and I had my first real good laugh in like a, a week yesterday. Nicole Byer shared on on her Instagram um, a video of herself in her mask and her uh, protest ensemble twerking in front of uh, a <laughs> fully armored crew of of either cops or military or whatever wearing camouflage. It is so like perverse. I don't. It's just so funny, and I'm just thinking thank you for this chuckle um her comment is something to the effect of i don't know what to tell you i'm complex (laughs) And, and i'm just like i even in this time like she is someone who can bring a fucking laugh and that was super needed at the moment and i'm so impressed with her ability to do that and i look forward to watching her stories and seeing how she can keep keep us laughing in her activism.
0: One thing that I've found really joyful um, uh, is on social media right now. um, As an aspiring interior designer, I uh, follow a lot of design accounts and those are usually pretty white women that know how to make spaces really beautiful. Um, Those are the ones with the most followers and the ones that are the ones that I follow. It is shockingly not diverse and it is shocking to me in retrospect that I never made a conscious effort to diversify my feed. However, a lot of these designers have done something really beautiful and they've started amplifying the voices of black designers of this gorgeous art that I've never seen before. These gorgeous interior spaces, this beautiful design, stuff that really speaks to me aesthetically. I have just gone on these deep dives and it is, that is a, a beautiful thing to be lifting up these voices and these other accounts that have completely stopped posting their own shit, and instead have started lifting up uh, designers of color that I that were never before on my radar. I find that very joyful, and it's diversifying the kind of people that are in my purview. It is joyful, and it's also
1: important to remember that there's not enough amplifying we can do to make up for the hundreds of years of of burying, and. While we keep amplifying, we also need to find ways to make sure black businesses and black people are getting the opportunities that have so often been monopolized by white people, which might mean, you know, getting out of the way in some cases or or redirecting opportunity that, you know, we've been handed because we're white.
0: Can I tell you something that I I don't exactly know how to fix right now, um, but I find to be really shameful for myself um, is when I look at my closest group of friends the people that are in my favorite contacts on my phone and the people that i ca- talk to re- regularly and keep in touch with mm-hmm. they're all white yeah they're uh th- i i have black friends they aren't my best friends mm-hmm. uh one of my my best friend growing up was black we've fallen out of touch over the past few years for a few reasons but um i am ashamed to admit that i don't have any best black friends and that doesn't make sense to me uh in in the way that i i like to think of myself as a person does that make yeah. sense <laughs> am i being I'm eloquent the, enough
1: <laughs> yeah i'm in the exact same boat we just talked about i've i've gotten so many opportunities i've, I've been all over the world i've worked in tons of different contracts lots of different companies and out of all of that, every time I work at a new place, I, I usually take with me a few best friends, and now I've got this great big circle of best friends, and not a single one, not a single one of my best friends is black. That is insane. How is that possible? Yeah. I mean, I know how it's possible. It's a combination of the racism I've learned and the racist institutions I've worked for, but like you said, it's just it's not a simple fix. All you
0: can do is change how you live your life so that— w- black people want to be your friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's not, that that's on us too. It's not because it's, there are a lot of things that play there, but part of it is we didn't attract them as friends. We didn't in- interact with these, with the black people that have been in our lives in a way that made them be like, this is someone that I want to be Part of my my best friend circle, yeah, you know what I mean. That is, th- this is not a true ally. This is not someone that understands my experience or is making an effort to under- understand my experience. And that is on us. That is a really good point. And to be honest, I hadn't even thought about it that way. The friend that I referenced earlier, growing up, we were best friends through junior high, and then um in high school, he went to uh, a city school in Indianapolis uh, because his aunt sat down with his parents and said. Your son needs to learn how to be black. You are raising him in a completely white community, and he needs to learn how to be black. And I was so mad as a kid. I railed against that for years. I was so mad that his aunt had enough sway over his life that he wasn't allowed to go to my high school because it was too white. And that felt so—I thought that was so racist of her. It was so— awful of her to to take him out of his community and force him to go to a school with more diversity um but i didn't understand it i didn't understand it until very recently why she made such a fuss about him going to a him being around people that share his experience in high school that helped inform his experience so much as an adult all i can say is like my perception of that was his racist aunt hates white people and (laughs) wants to take my friend away
1: LOL and also like, I mean, hate white people, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I hate white people. Um, So, we have been talking a ton about our education, our realization of the action we need to be taking, and our general feelings on this, but that is barely step one. And what we do understand is that we have to make changes aggressively. So, what are we doing? How are we, other than sitting here and talking about race, what are we gonna do?
0: Um, yeah, for me, it is. Uh, it's been largely uh, acting with my wallet, which I think is one of the most powerful things that we can do uh, if we have the ability to do so. Um, even if it is a small recurring monthly donation to um, a to the organization of your choice, um, I have uh, been picking a different organization every day. And, um, something that was brought to my attention today was the importance of doing a recurring donation because, uh, it is so easy to do it once, feel good about yourself and then never think about it again. Um, but the, the long term impact of recurring donations is, uh, is huge because that is, uh, the more people that do that, it adds up very quickly that, uh, monthly these expenses are being able to be met by these organizations. Um, and it is a passive, but powerful thing that we can all do. So, um, The next item on a very long to-do list is to set up recurring donations to a few organizations that I think uh, could benefit from a a monthly sum that comes directly out of my pocket without me even thinking about it or having to remember to do it. Yes, put your money where your mouth is. Now, what would you say to people who are like, I
1: simply have no pennies to spare? For many people,
0: the thought of giving away money every month is, is really tough based on the fact that a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck and have limited monthly budgets that are really strict. I bet you have five bucks. I mean, people love to say that's a that's a cup of coffee a day or whatever. You know, when you're, they're doing their donations, mm-hmm. five dollars a month is far less than a cup of coffee a day, um, and it is a sacrifice. These aren't always things that are meant to be easy, um, but you know, th- this is an active thing that that most people can do. Not everyone, not everyone can do five dollars a month, uh, but most of us can, and that is, if you can, you should.
1: And there's no lack of places you can donate to. You can just scroll your Instagram feed and find a million options. And if that doesn't work, we have included uh, that anti-racism resource that um, Google Doc that's being spread around. It's in our bio and our link tree. Um, So check that out. There's a million organizations you can donate to that could absolutely use your money. And I'm having deja vu because I feel like I've said this exact same thing before, and that's because I have. Cam and I threw out the first recording of both episode 50 and episode 51, and we have never before not used a recording, no matter how tough the quality.
0: No, we've always been able to polish a turd, even if it was a tough recording. Lovely,
1: Cam. Uh, (laughs) No, we decided not to use those episodes for a couple reasons.
0: Uh, Yeah, the first one we scrapped because we realized we recorded a completely normal episode for episode 50 and wanted to do something special, and so that turned into our listener episode.
1: And then, of course, we... We uh, decided not to release the first version of episode 51, firstly out of respect for the Black Lives Matter movement, but also to revisit the conversation. We had begun talking about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but since then the protests have erupted globally and the conversation has really shifted and may very well again before this episode comes out. All that said, I want to remember uh, to include a few of the things that we had mentioned in our first recording of episode 51, and one of those things is to sign up to adopt a state. So that is a program created by the folks from Crooked Media, and I'll give you their explanation of it. It says, you don't live in a battleground state, so how do you help out in the states that will determine who wins in 2020? We finally have an answer. No matter where you live, you can directly support the work of organizers, volunteers, and candidates in the six key battleground states that will be most important to delivering a progressive majority in 2020. Just pick a state. Sign up and we'll get you everything you need to make a big difference this November basically it's it's um how to organize for idiot or for dummies what's that book called <laughs> for dummies for idiots <laughs> how to be an or- <laughs> it's a <laughs> how to be an organizer for dummies slash idiots <laughs> so i picked pennsylvania because philadelphia is near and dear to my heart uh, cam how about you where are you adopting
0: um, i picked michigan of all places so um i really wanted to pick iowa however they have um they have identified six states that are where you can make the most impact if you don't live in a swing state um and Iowa is not on that list um i think it's because they have fewer delegates to the DNC and fewer opportunities to, to flip things like the Senate. Um, But I picked Michigan uh, for a few reasons. It's, Midwest. uh, It borders my home state of Indiana. Um, It is a quick jaunt from where I used to live in Chicago. It's a beautiful state with some really progressive people, some amazing universities, uh, some really, really beautiful small towns and and a lot of culture up there. Um, And I just feel very strongly that it is a fucking travesty that 11,000 votes turned that state red last time around. And it is time to bring it back blue, a little bit more blue in the Midwest never hurt anybody.
1: So find a state that speaks to you or just pick one randomly doesn't really matter. Someone
0: needs to pick Florida because Lord knows Cam won't. Yeah, that was the other reason I chose Michigan because it wasn't fucking Florida.
1: <laughs> Which is like honestly a really good reason to pick Florida and make it like <laughs> something else. <laughs> Actually, right after this, I have my first training. They're doing uh, trainings for one hour every Thursday in June to just teach us how to organize. They're going to start from square one. So if you have no idea, they're going to make it super easy. And hopefully we can flip this shit so we can start making some real change.
0: Absolutely. And that URL, by the way, is votesaveamerica.com adopt. We will put the link in our link tree on our Instagram. I know it's like hard to think about elections when that's months away
1: and people are dying right now. Uh, it's just something you can do congruently with the actions you're taking today to protect black lives, to fight for equality, to defund the police. Um, it's just, we can't really pick one or the other. It's We have to protest and we also have to stay active in politics and and fight for our elections
0: not even the presidency which is obviously the number one thing on most people's minds but the local elections that go along with that congress the senate all these things that uh, these these down ballot races which change communities so much faster than a presidency does like so much more directly Mm -hmm. um that it's so important and there's so much at stake in november and so um uh, all of this um uh, this movement it is so much more prescient that it's happening in a, an election year because in November of this year, we have the opportunity to vote people in that can make this change that we're marching for.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really hard just to even talk about because uh, I can understand why people, black people may not be encouraged to vote for a system that doesn't fucking care about them. It's really hard to say your vote matters when it hasn't mattered to this date, but all we can do is, uh, put our faith in the fact that getting more people with that experience in office can help enact changes.
0: Yes, and we can use our privilege to go out there and vote. White people failed in the last election to show up or to vote for the right fucking people, and we are in a mess because of it. So we can use our privilege, our enfranchisement, the people, the fact that no one is going to turn us away from polling places in most of our communities because they aren't trying to suppress our votes. We're going to go out and use that vote because it's fucking valuable.
1: Can I say something that may sound controversial? Yeah. Thank you. (laughs)
0: I have been wondering,
1: if Hillary Clinton was president, would we, white people, have chosen to pass on this movement? If Hillary Clinton had come out and made some political statement about black lives and had um, promised us actions for police reform, if we would have taken that as enough and moved on.
0: Just lazy, lazy liberalism?
1: Yeah. Perhaps the fact that we have an overt racist in office uh, is, is an easier way for us to feel enraged. But I I, I think it might've been difficult for a lot of us white folks to have a Hillary Clinton president and
0: still open our eyes wide enough to, to, to march in the streets to, to march yeah. to protest. Yeah. I, I completely agree. That's not controversial at all. I think that's very, that's like a very real way to look at it. It is so insulting to the black community. I'm sure I've seen people say this, uh, that it took, A fucking global pandemic and an actual overt racist in the White House and this many more black people dying at this one moment when everyone happens to be at home not really allowed to leave and they're focused on what's going on in the world for once to actually rise up and join black people in the streets to protest and i get that it is insulting it is so frustrating that it took literally the perfect storm of the world feeling it was ending for people to be like oh here's a way that i can i can go out and get involved (laughs) it is very frustrating that that is the that that is what has happened that's what it took to get us here but nevertheless we're here how do we make the most of this moment how do we use our voices mm-hmm. how do we make change yeah and i think that you're right i think that it is the perfect storm it feels like we are on the brink of either nazism or a step in the right direction and we have a choice to make yeah because not saying anything right now white people that are listening in america not saying anything is like Being, I'm not the first person to say it, but I completely agree. It's like being in fucking Munich in 1941 and watching your neighbors join the Nazi party and not saying a goddamn thing.
1: We've all had this thought. We all asked this question, or I'm sure many of us asked this question in elementary school and middle school when learning about history. And it's the very last thing they talk about in uh, 13th. We all always ask, how could people let this happen? Why? Why? Why didn't anyone say anything or step up? How did slavery happen? How did the Holocaust happen? We are letting it happen right now. We are. We have been letting it happen. We. That's how. It's silence. Yeah. It's very easy to let happen. You have to be aggressively anti-racist. It's such a naive notion to wonder why people didn't step up and do anything. Until about two weeks ago, most of us hadn't stepped up.
0: I keep thinking of that iconic sign from the marches during the AIDS crisis in the 80s and it silence equals death. Yeah. It is so true in this context as well. Silence equals death and it's not death from a disease, it's death of a a, a populace. It is a genocide. Silence equals complicity in- and <clears throat> he
1: said uh complicity again. So that's all.
0: Complicity and and cultural genocide. Yeah.
1: We can't let the next generation continue to ask why nobody did anything. Um, Before we go, there is one last thing I want to say about the ghost of episode 51 past. (laughs) We had included a uh, portion of a speech given by Akila Hughes. She is one of the hosts of What A Day, uh, again, on Crooked Media. And it was uh, some of the most powerful words I have heard um, to this point about about everything that's going on. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. It was from uh, the May 27th episode called Racism Continued. And then also just listen to What A Day. It's a awesome uh, morning news show.
0: Yeah, um, I want to thank the people that have reached out to us on social media um, to engage us, talk about signal boosting different black voices and educational resources. Keep those coming. If you have anything that you come across that you love um, that is helping uh, you understand or educate yourself, uh, we we will continue to signal boost the things that we've consumed and benefited from um, and share them with you. And please do the same with us because there's a lot out there, but there's really never enough because we have a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah, and not just like educational stuff i I want that too but also everything give me your favorite black comedians authors just content creators that i've missed or not allowed in my purview um we got a lot of catching up to do
0: absolutely that goes for both of us um all right well i think that's enough out of us for today uh we will continue the conversation uh the the two of us as we always do and we'll continue to try to get better be better and know more well said all right until we speak again bye bye